Hello, and welcome to On the Right Track podcast. On the Right Track is a podcast by two South Asian debut authors, Emily Varga and Sara M. Rana, that addresses the little-known secrets of publishing, marketing, and behind the scenes of traditional publishing. We interview guests who are in different stages, jobs, or careers in the traditional publishing industry in order to provide our listeners with an insider's look. Hello and welcome to On the Right Track podcast. Today we have two exciting guests for you. They are both librarians with the Austin Public Library. Welcome Kathleen and Sean. Kathleen Houlihan is a teen librarian three at the Central Library in Austin, Texas. She has her master's in information science from UT Austin and her favorite part of librarianship is how we are able to connect with our communities to work together to make our city a better place. Love that. And Sean is the interim division manager for branch services with Austin Public Library. He received his master's in library science at Florida State University and has worked in Maryland, Florida, and in Texas. And he's worked in both school libraries and public libraries, which is awesome because we have so many questions about those. Welcome, Kathleen and Sean. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So we kind of start off all our podcasts is similar to kind of get our listeners properly orientated with your experience and kind of what brought you here today. So are you both able, and I'll start maybe with Kathleen, give us a quick rundown about your journey into becoming a librarian, into joining the Austin Library Administration, and how you kind of got here today. Sure. Um, well, I have been a librarian for almost 15 years, and almost all of that time I've spent with Austin Public Library, um, with a brief stint at the Fine Arts Library at UT. I became passionate about public libraries and all of the cool things that they can accomplish when I was in library school. I thought I wanted to be an academic librarian when I applied to to library school and then I got into it and I was like, oh no, public libraries, that's where my heart is. During my time here, I've had a bunch of different roles. I worked as an outreach librarian, doing early literacy story times with volunteers, but also working with incarcerated youth. I worked with our puppetry troupe, um, one of the few professional puppetry troops that works for a library um, in the States, um, Literature Live. And then um, I transitioned to supervising the teen staff at the Central Library when we opened opened this beautiful new building in 2017. Okay, love that. That's a very varied experience as well from like puppetry to incarcerated youth to different types of libraries. I like got such a wealth of knowledge. Academic libraries and then also working in a public library fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like to, I like to stay busy, but I also like to be really closely connected to my community. And each one of those has given me an opportunity to really connect to a different facet of the community here in Austin. So it's been a really fun ride. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Sean, same question. All right. So I, I, I should start by saying that, um, that I am, uh, well, I guess what Americans would call an immigrant. And so I, I, I was born in Jamaica and in Jamaican families, I'm not sure what it's like for other families. Your career path is sciences. So you do health, you do mm. STEM, and otherwise you're wasting your time. So relatable. Exactly. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So um, I stayed away from librarianship <laughs> as much as I wanted to do it. So I you know, started doing chemistry and you know, my intention was to, was to be a chemical engineer. 
and then I moved away for uni in in Northern Florida. I moved away, and while at uni, I met someone who <laughs> get a little bit personal, but I used to date, and and she said to me, and she was a librarian, and she said. Sean, I don't understand why it is you, know, you don't do what you really want to do. You love books. You love collecting books. You love the acquisition of books. Uh, and it wasn't about books for me, by the way. No other mm-hmm. medium, just books. I took a risk and um, didn't tell my parents um, until after I was almost done with graduate school. Um, they weren't happy. I got to tell you that. But after that, um, after I kind of got into my field, working in public libraries initially in Broward County, Florida, I got my parents to be kind of on my side. I kind of, I wore them down. And uh, since then, they've been quite supportive. So I have worked primarily primarily with adults. I don't do um, youth too much, but primarily adults. Uh, my interest has always been in adult literacy, um, particularly in some of the communities uh, that I've worked in. Uh, we've seen folks who, um, like Kathleen, who folks who have been uh, formerly incarcerated, but on the adult side, um, who have struggled with literacy. So I've worked with that group. I've worked a lot with um, programming, job, preparedness, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Then I went to school libraries, worked for a while in Maryland and found out it wasn't, I wasn't well suited, let's put it that oh, way. Okay. And then I came back, um, I went to, I lived in England for a year and then I came back to the States um, about mm-hmm. seven years ago. Um, and I found uh, Austin mainly because I heard it was a cool city. <laughs> so that's why I landed yeah. here. And then I just kind of moved up the ranks, you know, um, I saw opportunities and, and, and took them, not realizing, by the way, that the, the further you move up, the less librarianship you do. No one told me that <laughs> stuff. Yes, I have, the, uh, I have a bone to pick with my, uh, my colleagues about that. But yeah, <laughs> that's, that's where I've landed. I do great. I love the work I do. Just <laughs> don't misunderstand. But I do miss the librarian part of, uh, yeah. So, yeah, you could still collect books, though, I'm sure. <laughs> I still do. I still do. Can maybe each of you break down your respective roles and your relationship with the library team as a whole? I'm in more kind of higher administration. So I focus a lot on, on creating and uh, policy and changing policy. I focus a lot on creating the direction where we go to the library. So each year we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have a focus. And so I help with that part of it. I do help with with bringing on new talent, particularly um, professional talent, and that takes up quite a bit of my day. Um, I also I handle um, customer concerns. I would say complaints, concerns. Oh, we're gonna get into that. But that's that's kind of the the high level explanation of kind of what I do. As I said, I'm a librarian three, and so I'm still a librarian working on a public service desk for m- much of my day, um, still providing public programs or events, um, whatever you want to call them. But um, as a librarian three, I have supervisory responsibilities, so I supervise librarians, I supervise program specialists. Um, program specialists are folks who specialize, as it sounds like, um, in providing programs, um, educational programs, literacy programs, all kinds of programs for teen audience, which is is what we serve. And then we have we have so many different roles in the library. We have pages, um, we have administrative specialists, administrative associates, so many different roles within the library that are involved in the care, the transport, the checking out of, the all of the back-end work of cataloging the books, selecting the books. We do use centralized purchasing here at Austin Public Library. So we have a centralized selection team who decides what books we're going to purchase. And so all of those folks make up that library family. I, I 
do want to mention uh, one thing that there, there's, a, there's a little bit of, of a bifurcation um, between the what we call the professional staff and the, the paraprofessional. Uh, so the professional staff, kind of like what uh, uh, Kathleen does, and myself also, are the staff that do hold the library degree. We're, and we are much more focused on on you know things like release advisory, on reference, on collection management, that sort of thing. And then on the paraprofessional level. Most of the folks that are doing uh, frontline work, uh, so uh, persons who are doing shelving, that sort of thing, um, who are checking books in and out. The bifurcation is not about hierarchy. I want to be very clear about that. It's just a matter of kind of how we function. Kind of like delegating different roles, just exactly. working simultaneously. Okay. Kathleen, I really liked your discussion of the centralized selection team because a lot of our listeners are authors. A lot of authors do not understand how books get chosen for libraries. And we hear often, oh, you know, this book was a bestseller because it really got picked up by librarians. And, you know, this book was pitched at the librarian conference. And so all the librarians kind of went and ordered it for their library. Are you able to even speak on that centralized kind of selection and how books even get into libraries and how that pipeline works? Sure, I can a little bit. Again, my experience is mostly working in, an, in a large urban public library. Um, school libraries function very differently, um, but sometimes, it, depending if it's a large school system, they may also have centralized selection who has, you know, one person whose job it is basically to read professional reviews and, you know, look at the collection development policy. Every library is going to have a collection development policy, and that includes a selection criteria. So usually those are available online. So you can go and, and search them up if you're curious about how those selection policies work. And that selector for Austin Public Library, we have a youth selector and adult, adult material selector and a world languages selector. And those librarians, it's their responsibility to you know, read all the professional reviews, select which materials and how many we're going to purchase for the system and make all that work with all the budgetary math of like how much money we have to spend. Another thing that a lot of folks may not realize is that when we're looking at selecting ebooks, you know, ebooks are so popular now, but they're extremely expensive for libraries to purchase. So whereas a print copy of a book oh, might cost, wow, you know, I have no idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So a print copy of a book might cost 15 or $20 to, to purchase a copy. And that's how much it costs the library too. Um, mm-hmm. If we buy a license for an ebook, that is going to cost us $80. Whoa. What? It's totally different for Whoa. libraries. There's a special price that publishers give libraries for books. And we usually only get the license for two years and then we have to buy it again. So yes, so they're very expensive. It's a big conversation about like how we can do this sustainably kind of moving forward because eBooks are so popular. No, that's so interesting. And you mentioned a couple of times trade reviews. So would you say, and I understand there's a difference between the school library acquisitions and like public library acquisitions, but would you say since there's one person kind of just looking at trade reviews and kind of like keeping their finger on the pulse, like is that a big market? for if a a book is going to get into a public library? I mean, I can't, since I'm not a selector, I don't know if I Mm -hmm. can speak specifically to that question, but I know that having a professional review is one of the items in the Austin Mm -hmm. Public Library's selection criteria is having positive reviews. So that's one metric for selection. Oh, wow. Okay. As you know, we are in such sensitive political times when it comes to America as a whole. So can you perhaps 
begin by telling us some of the impact that's had on the library system, specifically where you work? So um, I, I should start by saying that we are quite fortunate that we work in a city that is supportive of um, the freedom to read. So I want to be clear that I, you know, when it comes to the city, we are we are we are in solid ground. The state, however, we have faced some challenges on that end. And uh, one of the things that we we fall back on is our dedication to the freedom to read. And, and we keep doing that over and over again. Are we going to get some challenges? Yes, absolutely. And I've had to deal with quite a few of them on my end. Um, as you know, um, I do have to deal with, with customer challenges and customer concerns. But because we continue to lean on that, the Library Bill of Rights, that's the term that's used, it is our guiding light, sort of our North Star. So yeah. I didn't want to get into too many specifics, so that's why I'm answering that in a very broad way. But, if, but I hope, hopefully I, I got to the heart of your question. Yeah, no, that that's perfect. Um, and I know, Kathleen, since you work with so many different youth and you've done different programs as well, can you perhaps also give your perspective on how the political environment has affected, or as much as you're comfortable speaking uh, when it comes to the book band? Well, like Sean said, we're so fortunate here in the city of Austin that our city council has been so supportive. They issued a resolution supporting the, you know, the freedom to read and the importance of of not banning books. So that, I think, made all of us here at the Austin Public Library feel so supportive by our community. And I think I keep coming back to that word community, but I'm going to tell you a positive thing that's come out of, out of all of this is that it's really brought our community closer together. I've got so many fantastic community partners who have reached out, who want to work with the library, who we want to work with, you know, from local independent bookstores like Book People to organizations like Children's Defense Fund and students engaged in Advancing Texas. Like that's a youth-led organization that we've worked with to do conversations with our teen community around advocacy work relating to banned books. So I just feel so much more connected to our community. It's really easy to feel isolated when something like this political is going on because you don't know what's what end is up. But, you know, getting connected to your community and seeing how much support is out there really has been a positive experience. That's so fascinating that both of you kind of touched on city versus state. Emily and I, we live abroad, right? Or we live in a different country, but our books are published by American publishers. So a lot of us authors who are not super familiar with the system don't exactly actually know what the main difference is when people are talking about book bans. They're talking about, you know, it happening in the South, but then Texas is in the South, but then the city system is different. Can you perhaps break down what this exactly means? Because I know a lot of authors like myself want to understand, we want to help, but we also don't want to infringe and misunderstand what's going on. Yeah. I wish that I could give you like a concise thing, but I'm going to say it's different in every community. So we here in the city of Austin are experiencing one thing. But for example, Llano Public Library, which is another city in Texas, experienced something very different where Mm. their city government almost um, or tried to shut down the public library. It was ultimately, you know, there was a judge intervened and so they didn't shut down the public library. But that was about book banning and and related to that. So even within city government, 
governments, it's not always going to be the same. A lot of the conversations around book bannings are happening related to school libraries. So it might be a classroom library. So students and people might think, oh, well, it's in, it's still in the school library, but it can't be in classroom libraries. What's the difference? So a classroom library is that bookshelf that that teacher has in their classroom. And when it's like free reading time, it's go grab a book from that bookshelf. So if, if there's less books on that bookshelf, you know, that really diminishes the number of things that kids have to choose from, whether or not they're seeing themselves on those shelves or whether it's, you know, it's mm. a whole bunch of characters that they can't relate to. Um, so that is a huge impact on their daily reading ability if they don't have books in their home, especially. So getting those books in their classroom is really important. But then also being able to have them in their school library so that they can take them home at the end of the day, that's also really important. And so a lot of school librarians are trying to figure out how to navigate that space right now. Across Texas, different school districts are doing different things. So it's, again, it's, there's not one, um, it's not a cookie cutter thing. It's very different based on every community. So we've been talking about it more from a library perspective, but you both still work with books. You're still human beings. So how has this personally affected you, if you're comfortable, and how that maybe affects your day-to-day um, work in the library as well? So I, I will I will talk about it, um, not just as a librarian, but also as someone who writes. No one <laughs> wants to be told what, what, I can, what you can and cannot say. And on a more personal level, um, that does cut rather deeply, you know, <laughs> to, to hear someone saying, no, you don't get to say that or you don't get to read that. So on that personal level, yes, I, I do take it, it. It means a lot to me that what I'm seeing is, in many cases, a state going in one direction. Uh, and yet my own personal moral valence is going in another d- direction. That's as much as I can say on that one without getting myself in trouble. But yeah. <laughs> And I'll add on to that and say on a personal level, because I work with young people and it has been, you know, I've been a librarian for 15 years. So I've seen some of the changes in the publishing industry that have happened. When I first became a librarian, I can tell you that very few books were being published that weren't about white, cis, het characters. So when I worked with um, young people who that wasn't their identity, uh, it was really hard because they were like, why do I want to read about these characters? They don't have anything to do with me. And so I was so excited to see publishing change and seeing so many different stories and own voices, authors finally getting the, you know, the public, the numbers are still not where we would like them. We still, we have lots of progress to make on increasing the number of own voices, authors that we get on their shelves. But seeing that change happen was so delightful. And then it's really disappointing to to like (laughs) then have, you know, the narrative be about all these challenges. And I'm like, but you know, but the books and the stories, and I'm so excited about that part. And then I'm really frustrated um, that, you know, we still, we're coming up with new ways to silence voices, um, even though the publishers are finally opening up and making it possible for people to get their stories out there. No, that's such a good point. One of the most interesting conversations I've had to have is uh, letting folks know that because you see more people with my face um, hey, um, mm. with stories and, and, and covers of books uh, doesn't mean your story gets erased. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think that's kind of the conversation that um, I think we need to focus on. And, and I, it is my hope that I get persons who are uncomfortable with, with my face getting to see that, yeah, their stories still matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, such a good point. And can you guys talk about how your work includes equity, diversity, and inclusion to make books a safer space? So I, let, let me speak to the um, kind of the more policy side of it. 
I'm concerned with ensuring that all persons are welcome into a space. And so if I create a welcoming space, yeah, if policy ensures that folks in, uh, feel comfortable and safe in the space, then, then we can have the larger conversation of, of, of reading and, and engaging with stories. So I am concerned more about creating spaces. So um, just to give you one a specific example, the way how uh, children from certain communities <laughs> were being treated in terms of behavior in many of our, our libraries yes. was quite a bit of a challenge. You know, so, so a lot of you know, children were being removed from the library, kicked out of the library because their behaviors did not align with what's considered appropriate behavior. And so uh, we worked on policies to ensure that that you know, children are not removed from the library um, because their behavior, behavior doesn't fall under what's appropriate. So that's just one example um, of policy. Growing up, um, you know, I definitely had family members who definitely fell under that. But I love that the library is taking an approach not to be punitive, but to help them make sure they still have an inclusive space. So I really appreciate that. And it's such an interesting conversation around creating a space that is inclusive because a lot of people don't maybe think about a space not being inclusive. They're like, oh, it's neutral. Like if there's nothing not inclusive about it. I have a friend who's a city planner and he talks to me all the time about how you can make cities anti-racist, even the structuring of streets. So it sounds like that's kind of what you have to turn your mind to in a library as well. Even just the setup of the space and the dealing with, you know, the different types of people that are coming in and how we're making it so it's not seen as this neutral space, but it's actually welcoming to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love kind of what y'all have said. And I definitely believe in your your city planner friends, you know, take on things. And talking about Sean's example for so one of the things that happened here at the Central Library was we created this space where teens could come and game. Now, I don't know if y'all know teens who game, but there's a lot of trash talking. There's a lot mm. of, you know, kind of speaking out really loudly when you're playing because it's exciting, right? And so when we first opened the Central Library, we had this moment where some of our teens were like, hey, it's kind of loud in here and I'm trying to study. And then we had some of our teens who were like, yeah, I'm here to game and that's going to be louder and boisterous. When I think our flinch response was, oh, we need to shush the gamers, right? And I will say that the studying teens predominantly identified as as white individuals and the gaming teens predominantly identified as black individuals. Very Yeah. And and so when we really got to and down to it, we were like, well, let's talk to the teens. So we talked to the teens. We we actually got some advice from the the city of Austin's equity and inclusion manager at the time. And he was like, go talk to the teens. So we were like, yes, let's go talk to the teens. Of course we're gonna do that. Um, and so we talked to the teens and the gaming teens we're like, well, you know, yeah, I respect, you know, that everybody's studying and everything like that. But there's a lot of quiet spaces in the library. And really, this is the only place where these computers are. We cannot take the computers anywhere else. So this is kind of the only place we can do this. So I was like, that makes so much sense. This is very logical. And so we stopped shushing. We we offer um, earplugs for teens who are studying who th- want it to be a little quieter. We also suggest that maybe they want to reserve a shared learning room or go up to the quiet reading room. 
room. There's lots of other spaces in the library where it can be quiet, but this room is not going to be one of them. So that's an example. And then, you know, there's the day-to-day stuff that you do to try and make a space welcoming. So for example, it's such a small thing, but when we select books to put on display, um, the youth team here at the Central Library, we predominantly select Own Voices authors for display. It started to try and combat some of the discrepancies in the larger collection because we couldn't buy enough copies of things to have, you know, a better EDI proportion of books when we looked at an EDI audit of our collections. And so we were just like, let's, we're going to put these books out on display. We're prioritizing them for display as much as possible. And we still do that today. And what the community has told us is, I love coming to this library because I see myself on the shelves. I see my kids on the shelves. My, my kids can see themselves on the shelves right when we walk in. So that's, that's an opportunity for that welcoming vibe, even from such a, a small thing, even as a book display. I love that because growing up, libraries were always a safe space for me, but I never saw myself in any of the display cases or the books, which as a kid with a short attention span, which I think a lot of kids have, when you walk into a library, sometimes you just don't have like the attention span to browse through every shelf. I would just beeline mm-hmm. to, the, to the display shelves and like look at the back of each of those four or five books on there. So I love that both of these initiatives of not making the rules of a library punitive or making sure that people have a safe space to like have fun, play games and not shushing because that, that would give me a lot of anxiety when I was younger. I'm so glad you mentioned the idea of, 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 of shushing people, uh, Kathleen. You, you know, understanding how people communicate culturally really really matters i'll give an example of what i mean in my culture when i see another jamaican especially if they um if they identify as male as i do we have a way of interacting that's rather boisterous and we're loud and we're noisy and we we hit each other physically and so for someone from another culture looking in (laughs) might see this as being rather you know (laughs) rather combative something's going on and the reason why I mentioned that is that something like that happened in another location. I won't say which location it was. And the police were called because someone simply misunderstood how people communicate culturally. A tiny, Ooh, tiny thing. Yeah. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, is that how do we, um, how do we break down those kinds of cultural tensions um, in, in the library? So like, you, like, like what Kathleen did at Central Library in the branches, we were just like, no, this is not a quiet space. We just simply gotten rid of quiet spaces and branches. One because they're smaller, so we can't really afford to have quiet spaces. But we got rid of all of that, and and that has just made it so much more um, free of tension. Now the folks yes. can feel like they can they can relax a little bit. Oh no, I love that. What I love about it is like ground level examples, like specific examples. They are easy to understand. Whereas like if you talk about it kind of in the abstract, people maybe don't understand what that means, like on a day to day basis. And I think it's those are such good examples of that. As authors, we we hear quite a bit about the Texas Library Con and the, the Texas Library Association. It seems to be quite a big conference for authors. And it's a lot of, especially children's authors, go there. Is that something that you guys are involved in at all with the, the TLA and its con? Or can you 
talk a bit about that and what impact that has? Well, so TLA is the Texas Library Association, and every year there's an annual conference. It usually happens in April. Because Texas is big, our conference, our annual conference is also quite big. So it's on par with some like the national conferences, like Public Library Association Conference or the American Library Association Conference that you might go to. Also, because Texas has a really strong school librarian community, there's a huge presence of school librarians at TLA. So that's probably why you're hearing from children's book authors or YA authors that they're, this is a big conference for them. I am a TLA member. Um, and one of the ways that I'm involved in TLA, currently I've served on, on committees before in the past, um, like reading selection committees. Um, so the Texas Library Association puts out a lot of reading lists like the Blue Bonnet Award or the Lone Star List, which are recommended reading lists selected by librarians here in Texas. And all the kids read them. All the elementary kids read all the books that end up on those lists. Um, and so it's a really big cultural element here in Texas that you'll see um, is kids are looking for those Blue Bonnet books or those Lone Star books. And then this coming April, I'm speaking at the conference with librarians from Brooklyn Public Library. We've invited some teens to come and speak on the panel as well, but we're talking about banned books. Um, so we're talking about centering teens in the conversation around banned books and advocacy um, and how we can do that as librarians. So I'm excited to, to join that panel. So on my side, uh, the focus is more on professional development. So we do uh, send a contingent every year. Uh, this year, fortunately, it was in Austin, so uh, we could send a lot more folks. It wasn't as as, as costly. There, there is a cost involved and there's a budget involved. That's our focus. So we are, we are quite limited when it comes to a kind of meeting with authors and so on. Uh, when we do go through the vendor section, we, we run into authors. A lot, lot of children's, a lot of children's, very few adults. I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised how few adults. But that's kind of our focus mostly. It's more about uh, career and professional development and some networking at the, at the library level and, and less about uh, meeting with authors and publishers. It's interesting that you mentioned the discrepancy between children's literature authors and adult. I think it's because I'm in both spaces. And when I talk to adult authors, most of them don't think that these opportunities are open for adult authors from the ones I speak to. But I think slowly they're starting to realize that that's actually not the case. Oh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. You were mentioning how you don't really like talk to or chat to authors a lot, but is there a specific part of the conference where authors are chatting to librarians and like interacting? Well, I've, I've experienced both. Um, so sometimes on the conference, like the, the exhibit floor, so you'll have different publishing houses with exhibits and they'll have all their, all their books out there. And then, you know, they'll say, well, we're having this author at this time and maybe they'll have a signing line. And then that's, you know, sort of that one-on-one -on -one interaction with an author. Also dinners that happen or lunches that happen like the Blue Bonnet Luncheon where there'll be a different Blue Bonnet author at every table and you'll get assigned to a table for that luncheon if you pay for a ticket to the luncheon. Um, and then you can have sort of that one-on-one -on -one experience. It sounds so fancy. <laughs> so fancy, yes. Um, and so those are some those are some experiences. And then you'll also have like panels where authors are speaking about a particular topic, like if they're all murder mystery writers. So you might have a panel and so you can go in here. And one of the reasons that I like to go to those things is because it helps me get my patter down because 
as a public service services librarian, I do a lot of book recommendations working at the Central Library. People come here expecting to get really good book recommendations. So that's an expectation of my job. And I love to hear people talk about their own books because it helps me sort of cement how I'm going to pitch this book to someone if I think this is the right book for that reader. I know for some of my colleagues, um, and, and I do this too, I tend to uh, gravitate to um, the smaller press. Uh, one, because smaller presses uh, tend to have, uh, well, a smaller voice. And, and so um, I, 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 lean to, I lean to that. I know for a lot of for selectors, they will go to um, less well-known conferences to meet um, authors who are publishing uh, under, under indie publishing houses. And especially if you're looking for kind of own voices authors, quite often you, you do have to um, kind of browse, uh, browse the halls a bit to find uh, um, some of those authors. Yes, our selectors try every year that they can to go to the International Book Festival. These librarians are so dedicated. They go there. They're working like 12-hour days. They wow. are manually purchasing books and boxing them up to mail them back home because that's the only way wow. we can get some of these international titles. Um, so they work so hard, and I, I love that team. They're incredible. Yeah, I know. They're amazing. They're yeah. amazing. I think that that honestly like <laughs> is the good news for Sarah and I. Like, because we talk about this a lot, you know, publishers actually select who are going to write the library conferences, right? And we are always obviously have concerns because then there's, you know, they're selecting who are ending up in front of librarians, who are ending up in libraries. And it does seem that obviously there is like a, a lot more money being put behind authors who are maybe not own voices and not BIPOC authors and not authors of color. And it's so great to hear that the people choosing are actually actively going out and trying to vary and diversify their choices. So it's not just the people who are kind of in front of them, so to speak. And it sucks that it even has to be that way. Yeah. Like they're putting all into that work, but I'm like, the publisher, like that's their author. They should be doing that. Mm. And when it comes mm. to the smaller presses, I hate the whole hierarchy of big four and smaller. Like, you mm. know, a lot of the people we've had on this podcast, and I can't obviously say names, but a lot of the discussions we've had are authors who are so disillusioned by their big presses. And these are veteran mm. authors. And I think people are looking differently at the medium and smaller presses because they individualize your experience with them. You know, you can have mm. at least a more ethical experience with some of these presses. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. Can you perhaps walk us through library events and library talks? I feel like, Kathleen, you would be able to talk about some of the events that are put on. But Sean, I would also like to hear if there are specific policies that the library has to work on to make these talks safer, because you're talking about in-person interactions so at the Central Library, um, we work with bookstore partners to bring authors in, um, usually because they already are connected to sort of that touring framework that is sort of opaque to me. I'll be honest, I don't exactly know how that, that, how that works. But if an author is already coming to town because they've got a bookstore appearance or something, or they've got a book coming out, then we can, you know, we have an opportunity if we think it's going to be a, a bigger draw than the, bo the book, the little bookstore can handle 
handle, then we can try and host that event to help um, make space for that. But we also try, um, we're working on some some new programming. We're trying to do a local author book festival that will happen sometime in the spring. We're still figuring, we don't know what we're doing. I will be honest with you. We're still trying to figure all of that out. But, you know, every time we have a big event, you know, we try and bring in authors. So for example, for our Native American Heritage Celebration next month, we are working with Heart Drum to have uh, Indigenous authors come and speak on a panel. So Cynthia Leidick-Smith is an Austinite, but also helped sort of curate the authors for the Heart Drum imprint. And so she's got a panel that's going to come and talk at that event. So we're really excited about that. But all of that's all about relationship building and partnership. We do a lot of writing events for young people at the library, as well as for adults. Those are also opportunities to sort of connect our community to writers in a way that is meaningful to them. And we have such great organizations here in town. I keep talking about community, but it's all about community. Everything comes back to community. But, um, you know, the Texas Writers League um, is a great institution here that we have access to, and they, they do so many wonderful things with writers. And then the Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, um, we've worked with them in the past to bring authors for um, events like the Kids Block Party. So whenever we can, you know, we're trying to find ways to connect our community with with authors and the people who write all of these books that bring us so much joy. I tell you, Kathleen, you gave you you really gave a quite an exhaustive answer. So I'm not sure if I can add anything to that. I'll be honest with you, I don't think I can. Um, the one other organization I would love to mention is uh, the Library Foundation, uh, which does remarkable work, and and they've been so, quite supportive when it comes to getting um, authors in. One of the things that I'm concerned with is 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 how we uh, we compensate authors who are not big names. Quite often in libraries, and, and I'm not speaking about Austin Public Libraries, I'm just talking about libraries in general, we tend to want to pay them the least amount, or uh, quite often try to do it for free. And what I do on my end is that I, I push my, my staff to to get funds so that we, we can pay authors to come in and pay them something that's fair and equitable. Look, I get it. You know, what you'll pay uh, Noah Roberts, you know, fine. <laughs> She's a national name. It's going to be very, very different from what you, you, you'll probably pay Natalie Diaz. But regardless, it matters to me that authors, particularly the authors who are just coming up, that they get a piece of that pie. And that's yes. where I kind of come in. I totally agree with that. We had an event where we brought in two teen authors to come and speak. And it was it was similarly really important to me that we pay them for their time and their wisdom and their expertise mm-hmm. um, and not diminish the value of the experience that they were bringing to the library because they were just young people or just authors, whatever, you know, like not, mm-hmm. nobody's just anything. Like everybody has their, has so much wisdom and so much knowledge to share. And I believe as a, as a government institution, we should be paying people for their time and their wisdom and not, not taking advantage of them ever. <laughs> for our listeners, uh, Kathleen did air quotes when she was going, just <laughs> young people. Like, um, yes, very big air quotes there. <laughs> Are there any do's and don'ts that authors should know about when they're doing library events or talks? Um, I guess I can think of one big one. Um, 
don't lead the conversation with me or my staff by asking how many books I can sell. <laughs> it's like, please don't do that. Like, just like, just don't do it. Because immediately it, it comes across as a commercial venture. Um, and I'm like, oh, geez. Okay. Let me start the conversation by telling me about your work and, and your story and, and, and why you write. That That's that's much more interesting. But if, if you lead with what can I sell, I, I, I can tell you right now, it, it sets the tone for the conversation going forward. I mean, I, am I being too bold on that one, Kathleen? I don't, maybe no, no, I, 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 think, don't I, think, I think that's, I think that's good. Um, I'll say that one of the things that when I was working with like an early literacy population, so we're talking about picture books, like children's picture books, we do a lot of training for our staff to teach them how to be an effective storyteller. So being an effective storyteller is not the same thing as being a writer. It's um, just because you're a writer doesn't mean that you've got the same presence or the same, you know how to hold the book properly. So one of the things that that I sometimes would feel the need to do if I was working with an author of a picture book who wanted to come in and read their book, which sounds delightful, is what's your present, what's your stage presence like? You know, do you know how to hold the book so that all the kids, all 80 of them or a hundred of them can see the book? Do the pictures on the page? Are they going to read? Is that going to work? Is this, you know, because if we have a hundred kids at this event, which often happens at the Central Library, are they all going to be able to see the pictures? Is this the book for that, right? Is this the right setting for that? So those are some of the things I would think about. So I would say for an author, you know, go watch some online story times by librarians and see what they're doing. They have a very specific way that they are engaging with an audience. They pick books that resonate a certain kind of way. So think about those things because those are things that librarians are going to be thinking about too when they decide whether or not to invite an author into a story time space. If your audience is primarily young adults, um, emerging adults or, 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 or older older teens, I love working with authors who are willing to go to schools. That's a thing for me. So, so if you're willing to go to schools, I, yes, I'm. You're on, you got me. Yeah, you're on my team. We'll bring you into the library, yes, but quite often, uh, at least on my end, I will throw some money towards um, having you do a school tour. The other bit um, for uh, for adults, because I think we are so fortunate to live in Austin and work in Austin, I don't worry too much about safety and or, or you know topics to shy away from. That, that's usually well received here. Yeah, I wouldn't sort of worry about that. Um, I, I can say that um, I'm not keen on persons who um, their their main aim is to they want to disenfranchise another group in their story. You know, I've, I've met persons like that. That's the reason why I'm bringing that up. If, if that's your, your main goal, it's not going to be a pleasant conversation. So, yeah. <laughs> we have had authors where we had to come up with a safety plan because th- there was the possibility of a protest and we want to make sure that everybody is safe and, and feels comfortable and can attend the event safely. Um, so there have been times where we had to come up with a safety plan where we either made sure we had extra security guards working that day Day, or we made sure we had extra staff in this space. So yeah, I mean, that happens. But um, we always try and work with, we're working with our author. Usually it's a concern that the author brings to us. They're like, hey, I've been receiving some threats online in advance of this event. And so, you know, that's when we work with them to kind of make a plan. I love that. If you had any advice for authors wanting to have their books featured in libraries, especially international authors, how would they or should they collaborate with libraries. If I may add, a lot of times authors like myself, Emily, or ones who live in other countries can't always attend cons or network with librarians to get to know 
them. So I think that that is a big part of how a lot of authors feel anxiety. Mm-hmm. We keep referring to the selection policy, but I think making yourself familiar with selection policies of libraries you're hoping to get into is going to give you a lot of intel that you may mm. need about you know what what kind of things they're looking for when they're selecting a book. So I would mm. definitely say familiarize yourself with library selection policies, and then you know do what you can do to make sure that your your title is hitting those marks. And then you know as Sean and I talked about, lots of libraries do events with authors. They could be in-person visits or even with uh, international uh, visits, do virtual visits. Um, So if you're interested, you know, a lot of libraries will have like a collaboration request form on their website. And you can always fill that out and just sort of pitch your idea to the library and see if they have capacity um, at that time. So, yeah, every library is going to be a little bit different. But those are some some pieces of advice I would give you. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, exactly right. That's awesome. I don't think we've ever heard that. Like to look at the selection policy for libraries. Like we've talked to pe- different people about library selection and things like that. And that is actually not something that anyone's ever said. So that's actually a really good nugget of information. Sean, I'm, I'm coming back to you. I'm circling back because we mentioned it in your bio and I... I want to get into it a tiny bit, if you can. You said that you deal with complaints to the library. So what does that entail? What kind of complaints are you dealing with? And how, how much of that does that impact library policy? Okay, so so it, it runs a gamut. They're, they're, all, they're all over the map. But the two main ones, yeah? The first one um, is, is what we, you know, I kind of, we touched on before, um, uh, complaints about content you know, uh, book mm. content displays. We recently had a person who uh, complained about, well, let's just say that it was a very provocative book. It really, really was. If, if I may not oh. so provocative, <laughs> but, it was, but it was displayed in a way that the um, this person thought that their five-year-old should not have seen it. Um, oh, so so we, okay. we, we've, had, we've had those kind of conversations. So there's that bit. The other end is, for me, even more disturbing, and, and that is, Lots of complaints about many of our customers who present as being unhoused mm-hmm. in our community, and we've had a lot. I've had, yeah, I've had, had a lot of um, concerns and complaints, and I'm going to call these complaints. These are not concerns; these are complaints. Uh, these are persons mm-hmm. that said things like, "You know, what are they doing here? You know, they don't belong mm-hmm. here," sort of thing. Um, yeah. Yet we are a library for all. And, and, mm, and so, it's a public space. And those yeah. complaints have been very challenging. So how does that impact um, kind of, um, or inform, I should say, rather, um, how I look at policy? We lean on our guiding principle is that the library is for all, period. Mm. And so that is you know, was our guiding light. Yeah, hopefully I, I got to the heart of your question, but yeah. No, that did give us more perspective because I was like, who is complaining about the library? Like, what are they... <laughs> saying but you know it gives a different perspective and and i would say that we have that in my city too i do hear people complaining about unhoused individuals like going in and even if they're like using the internet to help you know work or communicate with their family like it's wild to me that because it is a public it's a public space it's a public building we wanted to kind of end with asking if there's been any hard truths in your profession about being a librarian or working with libraries that you could tell our listeners if they were wanting to either work in that profession or that they didn't know anything about, is there any hard truths that you could share with them? Yes. Cue the sad trombone. As 
as much as as much as people think that all librarians do is read all day, unfortunately, there is actually very little time for reading yes. <laughs> if you are a librarian. So we do not get to read books all day. Sadly, sadly, we do rely heavily on professional reviews to stay up to date so we can do readers mm. advisory and book recommendations because that is a big part of our jobs. And we do hire people who love books um, so that they will continue to read them and, and be uh, good stewards for our book collections. But sadly, um, many people think we get to read all day, but we do not. On my end, uh, for those who are in library school or planning a library school and you want to work in public libraries, this is a big thing. Mm. Be prepared to work with customers who are suffering from serious addiction issues. Mm. One and many customers who are facing significant mental challenges. Mm -hmm. Be prepared. It's something, you know, it's, it's a way of sobering people. Because lots of folks come out of library school thinking, kind of like what, what Kathleen's thinking, you know, you get to read all day. Or mm -hmm. let's take off the reading all day bit. Let's go with um, something much more realistic, quote unquote realistic. You know, just select books all day. Or, mm -hmm. or you go to catalog. In a public library, it's much more about people it's much mm -hmm. more about how do I connect with someone who right now is just really having a tough time because they might have missed the medication or the, the, education, the medication was the wrong uh, medication. Mm -hmm. You'd be surprised how often that situation comes up. So that's one hard truth, two hard truths, I guess, I'd like mm -hmm. to kind of mention. Those are really good. They're good perspectives. And there's so many aspects of even just library administration that I never even thought of, because I think we all kind of centralize it in our minds if we're not in that, oh, the librarian is choosing and reading and like doing all this, but there's different roles that are specifically delineated, which I think you guys have done an awesome job explaining. With that being said, we're going to move to our fast round. It's our final round of questions. Um, so this round is really meant to be something off the top of your head, whatever comes to mind first, like answer with. Okay. Name your favorite recent reader. Oh my gosh. Uh, here, I will tell you another, another hard fact. I would not be able to do reader's advisory if it were not for tools like Goodreads where I could keep track of what I read. Cause I totally, as soon as I finish it, I'm like, and it's out of my head because I don't I ever like want to be stalling for time. I'm totally, yeah, I'm is. totally stalling for time while I look up my Goodreads list. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're totally right. Sean is going to have to go first. Sean, go. I know it is. I just, just read uh, the 392, um, actually the number 392 by um, Ashley Hickson Lovins mm -hmm. um, about a, a bus, so I think it's called a 392 in London, uh, I think it's in Hackney, the interactions between the the customers on the bus and, and the passengers rather, and kind of what happens at the end. It's kind of an interesting read. Mm -hmm. Love that. Okay, love that. Okay, I do have one. I'm a children's <laughs> Um Well, I think the reason I was struggling with it was because I was like, it's not a YA book, but I can't remember anything. So it wasn't YA, but it was um, Lisa C's Lady Tan's Circle of Women, which is um, mm. about the 1500s and it's a female doctor. And it, it was based on a real book of a female doctor's cases. Lisa C sort of envisioned what this person's life might have been like. It's such a great story. Such a great story. I oh, love those two. Okay. What is your craziest memory of working in the library administration? Jesus. <laughs> um, so I had a, a, a customer, not in, not in Austin. This was in, in Barrow County, Florida, who literally had tinfoil on his head. Oh, no. Literally had tinfoil on his head 
and said the people were talking to him. I was like, wait, this doesn't really happen in real life. It's only on TV. But yeah. he actually had it. I was like, wow, are you yeah. kidding me? You cannot make this thing up. Yeah. <laughs> it was the craziest thing ever. I was like, yeah. I wanted to laugh. I was like, dude, are you, are you, are you playing me? Yeah, <laughs> like, are you just playing into this right now? But it was real. Uh, it was real. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Kathleen? One year we were holding an, an anime and manga convention for teens. Um, it was called right. YomiCon. It was amazing. We had like 2,000 teens there. It was it was crazy. But um, one of my favorite things was seeing teens leaving. Like literally they were trying to carry out so much manga. I can't like totally convince oh you. But God, basically they, like were, a big they, had them, they had them pinned under their chin. Like, oh. And it was not just one teen. It was many teens. Check out like the entirety of a series like all 42 volumes and so yes that just watching them walk around trying to manage you know 40 books at once was super entertaining <laughs> yeah my turn okay this is easy tea or coffee when reading coffee all the time oh. i just became the proud mother of an espresso maker and <laughs> it has dramatically increased my reading ability my reading speed i'm able to read so much more it's yeah. always coffee it's helping you be efficient as well that's, exactly. that's great <laughs> in uh, in honor of our british uh, colonizers tea <laughs> yes me too <laughs> i'm a big tea drinker Fantasy or contemporary books, if you had to choose one? Oh, my goodness. Contemporary. I'll, I'll pick one. I'll pick contemporary. Yeah. Historically, I was definitely fantasy, but I feel like I'm more contemporary, but I really like historical fiction, and you didn't give me that option, but so mm. contemporary. I hear it. I hear it. Okay. What's the best thing? about your job? My teens. The teens are incredible. They have such great ideas. People come in. We have we have tourists all the time who come to the Central Library and they're always like, oh, it's so amazing. Why our library doesn't have any of these things. And I'm like, anything that's cool in this room was not my idea. That was the teens idea because they're so amazing. So definitely the teens. The moment, and this happens so often, it's, it's unbelievable. The moment when a, when a kid sees either the manga section of the library or the board books that they really love. And mm -hmm. they have, they all do this. Their mouth is open. <laughs> I love that moment. And it's my favorite. I, I, can, I can see it every single day and I'd be happy. For our listeners, Sean just imitated a child walking into the section with their mouth dropping open and looking in shock and awe, which my kids have definitely done walking into the library. So I feel it. I still do it. I still do. Yeah. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> if you had to pick a favorite library program, event, or collaboration, what would it be? Okay, so I did a collaboration with a local community college um, called Austin Community College. Mm. Um, and we brought welding classes to, oh. I think it was three locations over a couple mm. of years. It helped get folks kind of prepare for certification for welding. My f there are two favorite things I loved about that. The first thing was that the class was, was led by a woman. Love that. That was absolutely the coolest thing. And then the second thing was, was that we intentionally opened it up for those who are um, undocumented Americans. We really, mm. you know, quite often a lot of these classes, you do have to prove that you are um, a citizen or a resident. I said enough, but that's, that's my favorite. That's my favorite. No, I love, I love that. Love. And I would have to say, I mean, it's hard 
Yomikon is a very close second, our anime and manga convention, but I'll have to say um, Bandcamp, um, which is our, mm-hmm. our um, band books collaboration with so many different community members. But my favorite element of it has been seeing teens from around Texas. We just had a networking event a couple of weeks ago, and we had teens from Houston and from Katy and, and from Austin and San Antonio and Houston, like all on this virtual call, like talking about what they were doing, coming up with ideas for ways to advocate for um, the freedom to read. And it was just a beautiful Mm. space. And I've gotten to know so many different organizations and advocates in our community. And so definitely has been the highlight of my time here at APL. Amazing. And band is spelled B-A-N-N-E-D. I don't know if that comes across in a podcast. It's all about band books. I love that. Love to throw unhinged questions during this round. Favorite or worst author that you have met? I will tell you, I don't remember their name because I just didn't need to. There you go. But remember how I told you earlier, authors, please make sure you know how to read a book to an audience. I, I actually had a children's book author who opened the book like this. This is like my hands are the back of the book. So you get to see none of the pictures of the book. And they read the entirety of the book with the book facing them and never once showed any of the pictures to any of the children. So all the children got to see was the cover of the book for the entire story time. And I don't remember that author's name, but that's probably for the best. Um, So I'm going to go with the positive, the favorite, because I've I've had a couple that were not great. They're like, whoa, you're not nice. But um, my favorite, she was absolutely wonderful, is Angie Thomas, uh, Mm. who wrote The Hate You Give. She was effervescent. Um, And just just, just filled with just goodness. Um, So in my culture, we call it, the term we use is that your spirit takes to the person. Um, Uh In Pathway, it says, your spirit take you. That's what we say in that language. But it's immediately just connected with her because she has such a wonderful spirit. But yeah, amazing, amazing writer. Amazing writer. I love that. And I love that one of you gave a worst and one of you gave a favorite. I'll <laughs> <laughs> each other out. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen's like, shit. <laughs> no, but, but she copped out and didn't give any names. So yeah. Yeah. I really, yeah, I, not again, cool. I, no, not I, cool. I cannot remember anybody's names. <laughs> I can't do spoilers because I forget the end of books as soon as I read them. It yeah. is actually really important skill as a librarian it's <laughs> good it's good it's good to blame things on that for sure um okay what is your best memory about going to a library either as a child or an adult Oh my gosh, I can totally tell you this one right away. Um, so I actually grew up in Austin. I'm a second generation Austinite, a sixth generation Texan. And my public library when I was a kid was the old central library, which is this old brutalist style building. It's very dark, lots of wood. When I was a kid, I used to go to puppet shows there. And I didn't remember this. I actually, you know, I don't have a lot of my childhood memories for a variety of reasons. And I couldn't remember this, but when I started working with the puppetry trip, I was like, some of these puppets look really familiar. And then they took oh, this wow. puppet from a Goldilocks story out of the box because they were going to do the Goldilocks puppet show. And I was like, I mm-hmm. recognize that puppet. And then all these memories came flooding back oh, from God. going to the puppet shows at the library here in Austin. So um, so that was a really lovely full circle moment for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, I, I might have been maybe eight years old. And uh, this is we sort of been in the 70s. So I just aged myself when I said that. In Spanish town, it's a Catherine Parish Library, 
I didn't realize that when you check the books out, you need to bring them back. I remember yeah. that. I, I, yeah, that's the one thing I remember. So I guess I like, so I wanted to own everything that was in the building. I was like, right. It's just, what? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's the weirdest thing. You're like, like, this is quite... just free space yeah. for me to just like, like get a bunch I, of books and leave. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Government of Jamaica. You guys are brilliant. <laughs> um, so I, I picked up um, a, a novel called Emile and the Detectives. It's very old, very old, old, old work. And, I brought it home and I, and I became so engrossed in the work. I read it like three times and I brought it back late and uh, there was a fine. And the uh, the librarian at the desk uh, okay. saw my face and she said, she said to my mom, oh, he's so cute. I tell you what, I won't charge him for it. And, um, <laughs> and, and I never forgot that. Not because of the charges, call me cute. So I'll take the cute part. That's what I'm going to go through that one. But yeah, that was my, my, my favorite memory. Yeah, <laughs> we've wiped we've wiped fines in our library system and our we public. Did Have too. You guys done it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I love yeah, we that. We did too. Yeah, it's been, so it's been another equity issue too. Another equity mm-hmm. issue too. So, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what's your favorite library besides the Austin one? Seattle Public. Mm. Yeah, there's something about how that building works. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very dark inside, but they, they have these yeah, they have these different colors and different and different uh, floors, and they're mm-hmm. bold colors like reds and yellows and greens. It's something about that building I'm just I'm super drawn to. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm gonna go with that. That's a good one. My favorite is actually the San Antonio Public Library. It's big and red, and it has this beautiful Chihuly glass sculpture in the middle of it. Um, but I love their teen area in that space. Everything I know mm. about teen services, I learned from the wonderful librarians at San Antonio Public Library, who were so generous with their expertise and knowledge. That library will always have a fun place in my heart. Oh, awesome! Oh. And our last, but probably most important question: What is your favorite reading spot my hammock in my backyard but only in october and february because otherwise it's too hot oh not in july you're not chilling out there in july no, it's, it, when it's 114 no thank you, no, thank you. i've been to texas in the summer it's not the funnest no. and, and, and tell, tell me it's 114 celsius that's how bad it is um for me um there's a local coffee shop in the town that's just north of where I work. I live in a, a town called Pflugerville. And it's a great coffee shop called West Pecan Coffee that makes the best flat white ever. It's moody and slightly dark. Heaven, absolute heaven. Love it. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, guys. That was such a fun interview and also really informative from a lot of different perspectives. You guys do amazing work and we're so, so happy that you've given some of your time to us to be on this podcast with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been, it's been an absolute joy. Such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to On The Right Track Podcast. Visit us online on Instagram at On The Right Track Podcast. Subscribe, leave a review, rate, and share with a friend wherever you listen. This show is hosted by Emily Varga and Sarah Mughal-Rana. Our editor is Abby Cirquitella. If you'd like to support us, please visit the links in our show notes to find more about how. How?